Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Sam Mazur, and I'm joined tonight by Dr. Beck Raymond Colker. We are sadly without Justin and Chris tonight, but we know they'll be listening to this episode just like you. So our guest tonight is Dr. Ina St. On. She's here to discuss cystic fibrosis. But first, let's remind you about that show. We are the pediatric medicine podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Ina St. Ange, who is a pediatric pulmonologist and assistant professor of pediatrics at Tufts University School of Medicine. She is the director of the Pediatric Cystic Fibrosis Program at Maine Med, and she is passionate about medical education and quality improvement work. She teaches us about newborn screening, diagnosis of cystic fibrosis, maintenance therapy, and what happens when these patients with CF are admitted to the hospital. Don't sweat it. Let's get to it. Hi, and welcome, Dr. Seance. Thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Um, your last episode was a major hit. Um, but first, you know, just because we're an informal group and we might have some um, new audience members today, I'd just like to ask if it's okay if I call you by your first name? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Well, like I said, as a returning guest from our episode on airway clearance, our listeners likely already know you. But for those new listeners out there, do you mind giving us a quick one-liner to just describe yourself? Sure. So I am a pediatric pulmonologist. I'm a mom of two young boys. And uh, we recently transitioned from Massachusetts back to Portland, Maine. Um, So we are living up in Maine and just really enjoying all of the fall leaves and the weather this time of year. And all the lobster on the, the lobster. Uh, on the side on, on the on the side of the the ocean. Well, we have so many wonderful things um, to talk about today. I'm so excited for this episode. So we're gonna skip the small talk and just um, in the spirit of Chris the Chu Manchu, who's not with us today, we'll read our AI generated haiku specifically for this episode. It says, "Drops of sweat gathered, chloride levels in clear view." diagnosis found we can oh, talk okay. more about if that's accurate or not <laughs> yeah right really exactly enjoying chris's um ai generated haikus at the beginning and at the end i'm listening all the way through the end for his like bonus poems that's, that's yeah that's a good call for everybody else stay tuned there is going to be a ginormous poem at the very end but we'll get to that in a second um so if you guys don't mind i'm just going to start with a case and let's see if this haiku is actually accurate so our patient from Cash Lack Children's, it's Max Flem. He's a three-day-old full-term baby boy who you're seeing for the first time in your primary care clinic. Max was born via spontaneous vaginal delivery without complication to a 30-year-old otherwise healthy mom without any prenatal complications or abnormal prenatal labs except for some mild anemia nor some prior medical history. So mom does have a cousin with cystic fibrosis, but no other family history of childhood diseases. Max's newborn nursery course was uneventful, and he was discharged after 48 hours after urinating and passing meconium. His newborn screen is still in the state lab, and parents are excited to see their pediatrician for the first time. As we get started, the first question for you is, what is cystic fibrosis, and should Max's parents even be worried that he may have it? 
Yeah, so it's a great place to start. And, you know, we should note that you guys already did a fantastic CF episode. Um, and so we'll get into a little bit about what CF is, but not into the into the weeds. So CF is a genetic condition affecting salt transport, essentially, in the body, and more specifically, chloride transport. So if we remember that water follows salt, it's easier to, to understand. So if chloride isn't moving and salt isn't moving, then water isn't moving. And so all of the secretions in the body get really dehydrated and really sticky and start to gum everything up. Um, and this affects multiple organ systems. Um, obviously, the sinopulmonary tract um, is the one that I think of most. And then um, the GI tract, the liver, the pancreas, even the reproductive tract is affected. As far as this baby is concerned, I think while there is, it sounds like some family history, it seems that CF is probably unlikely in this child, but we really need that newborn screen. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about the newborn screen? So we, we kind of all know that this is, thing is in the state lab. You know, cystic fibrosis is on, quote, on the newborn screen. But can you tell us more about how this works, about whether this actually makes a diagnosis? You know, kind of how is cystic fibrosis diagnosed in this age? Yeah, so um, you're right that newborn screening is the first line, and this is conducted in all 50 states um, and the District of Columbia in Puerto Rico. Um, and this has been rolled out over the last several decades to, to encompass the entire country. And each state is a little bit different. So every state has a different algorithm, different cutoff values, different genetic panels. But in general, the sensitivity ranges for CF newborn screening are over 95%. So 95 to 98% is um, the data that I could find. And while that sounds great, right, for most tests in medicine, if you have something that's 98% sensitive, that sounds great. But when it comes to a fatal genetic condition, all pulmonologists are going to say, well, it's not 100%. And so we will we get sweats on kids that had normal newborn screens for various reasons because we know that sometimes they fall through the cracks. And so the PCP, the primary care provider, will get either a normal CF newborn screen or what we call screen positive. And so all babies that have a positive newborn screen should be referred for sweat testing. And so can you tell us a little bit more about sweat testing? That's one of the things that we all want to know. How on earth does this work? What do these numbers mean? Um, and what on earth do I do with this? Yes. So it is important for, for primary care providers because they will be the first notified of um, the newborn screen. And so knowing where to go with that is important. So sweat testing, the fancy medical term for this is pilocarpine iontophoresis, which is where you take a sweat collection device about the size of a wristwatch, so it's not very large, and it goes on both arms of the baby, one first and then the second, and there's a medication put on the skin, and then the device sits on top of that, and that stimulates sweat production. And then the device collects the sweat um, inside, and then that sweat is tested in the usually in the in the micro lab for the chloride content. And so then the chloride content that's reported back tells you your result. And there's one of three options. So a value less than 30 tells you that CF is unlikely. A value higher than 60 or 60 or higher, I should say, tells you that CF is likely and that is considered diagnostic uh, as long as it's repeated and still positive. And then the tricky part is that intermediate range. So from 30 to 59. And those children are referred for repeat sweat testing a few weeks later, but a lot of them either will then normalize their sweat chloride 
or go on to have a diagnosis of what's called uh, CF-related metabolic syndrome. And the metabolic part of that isn't necessarily like what you would think of in adults with metabolic syndrome. So hypertension, diabetes, that's not what we're talking about. It's specific to cystic fibrosis. And it's sort of this intermediate range where they can have some manifestations, but it might not be as classic CF. And so all of those patients and the screen positive patients are sent for genetic testing as well. And what is the role, I guess, in that intermediate range, I can understand why you would want to send for genetic testing. What's the role for genetic testing for also the screen positive patients? Yeah, so genetics has become more and more important for for this population. And part of that is disease prediction, but it's more important for treatment because as we'll get into later, some of the highly effective uh, modulator drugs that we have for CF now the eligibility is based on your genetics because the drug itself is working at that mutation level. So we need to know which mutation you have in order to know which drug you are a candidate for. So that's why our positive CF babies are also sent for genetics. And you were just mentioning about repeating that sweat testing in a couple weeks to see if it normalizes. Why would it be abnormal to begin with and then normal later? Is there something about because we do this so early in life that something is different or something's going on with the skin? Or is this just uh, a lab error or something like that? Yeah, it could be either of those. Um, And so prepping for the sweat test is important. So not putting like lotions and creams and other things on baby and most centers, you know, there's a little handout or an email or something like that to tell parents how to prepare for these things. There um, are all different reasons for a false positive sweat test. A lot of them are different endocrinopathies or other conditions, but you can definitely have a false positive or a false intermediate as well that is not related to CF. And then lab error is also as you mentioned, a possibility. And so those those children will definitely have repeat sweat testing before being diagnosed either with the metabolic syndrome or cystic fibrosis. And we'll kind of get into this a little bit about what the next steps would be. But if it was an intermediate test, for example, and the patient had to, and we'd have to repeat it, would you expect the primary care doctor to be the one to repeat that in a couple of weeks? Or do you think that would be the referral to pulmonology and that the pulmonologist would repeat in a couple of weeks? What do you kind of expect when you're a pulmonologist hearing about patients? So from my standpoint, um, we we take ownership pretty quickly of any child that um, has a positive newborn screen and certainly any child that is in the intermediate range We because we're already talking to the family about what intermediate means. And so we are often the ones to order the next sweat test and then communicate the plan back to primary care. That's very helpful, right? Because us as a primary care doctor, we'd be like, ah, what do I do with this number? And it seems like if you're like, oh, I get that automatically and I'm going to see it, that makes me feel better uh, as a generalist for sure. Absolutely. I have a question um, because I know that we were talking about how it's great that these newborn screens are so sensitive, but what happens when it's not picked up in that 2%? Can it present later in life? Or do I need to sometimes even be thinking about this in patients that had a totally normal newborn screen? Yeah, that's a really great point. And we, as pulmonologists, are always thinking about CF. And I don't say that just as a CF doctor. I think any of my asthma patients that are now getting recurrent pneumonias and maybe they're not gaining weight very well, we are very quick to sweat people uh, because it's relatively inexpensive uh, in the grand scheme of medical care in the United States. It's also non-invasive. It's a fairly easy test to do for the most part. It doesn't hurt the baby. You know, it's pretty benign in, in that respect. And so 
uh, we are always thinking about who else do we need to sweat in our pulmonary population. But the presentation in an older child can vary. And so some of the common things that you might see, keeping in mind that in general, this is fairly rare, uh, would be a child with poor weight gain, recurrent sinopulmonary infections, um, malabsorptive symptoms like steatorrhea, nasal polyps actually. Um, so sometimes we'll get referrals from ear, nose, and throat colleagues because they've noted nasal polyps in a child, and so they will send them over for sweat testing. Um, or even rectal prolapse with significant constipation um, because of the really significant constipation and, and thick stool material that can come with CF. You know, sometimes those children can, can present with rectal prolapse as well. That's super helpful, and I definitely feel like I'm going to be seeing CF everywhere. I'm going to sweat everyone. No, I, I won't. But it's it's a really good reminder because actually so many of those things we actually, at least in small pieces, see very commonly um, in your primary care, urgent care, or general hospitalist peds departments. I know that one thing that we you know always talk about on this show is how disparities in diagnosis or in treatment, um, especially for more rare conditions, affect our, you know, patients that we take care of. Is that something that you have, you know, seen in your work or in your research? And, and how do those disparities play out for cystic fibrosis patients? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that because this has been a really uh, growing in the field of CF. And I think there's more and more coming out every year about the way that, you know, disparities are affecting this patient population. So we've seen in the, the national data from patient and family self-reporting to the CF Foundation that the ethnic and racial makeup of CF patients has been changing a bit in the United States. So our African-American population is sitting at about 4.5% in 2021, which is the most recent data, and that's up from 2 to 3%. Um, even just five or 10 years ago. And then the Hispanic population is also almost at 10% now. It's about 9.8% was the last number that I saw. And then there's you know other smaller categories that are, are lumped together in this particular survey that the foundation um, sends out. But those numbers have been increasing for non-Caucasian uh, population. And so with that comes a lot of new information about the barriers that those families face. And, and there's delays in diagnosis, there's delays in first evaluation. Um, sometimes there's engagement barriers, you know, it, it can be difficult interfacing with the healthcare system and, and dealing with some of this. And so we're learning a lot more about how to be more inclusive there, even newborn screening and the genetic panels that are sent, they are not always picking up some of these more rare mutations that are, are can be more prevalent in these minorities. And so we're looking really, really closely at this. And the CF Foundation has um, a lot of ongoing initiatives to gather those different perspectives and find ways to address this. That's really interesting to hear about that data. And I think specifically, you know, in the way that cystic fibrosis at least is like taught in sort of a testable and generalizable way, you know, it is definitely something that, you know, the the boards type question is often identified as more frequently in children that are sort of self-identified or are labeled as white kids. And so making sure that we don't have premature closure for um, different kids of color, kids of color that are presenting with symptoms, um, making sure that we're not missing that, I think is a really helpful takeaway for our audience as well. And, and great to know that there is more research being done by that foundation too towards that. 
And especially with our gap in sensitivity that we kind of talked about, that makes us all be mindful about, um, about yeah, if we, have, if we see something clinically, we can absolutely do a sweat test on these patients regardless of what the, uh, the newborn screen came back on. So um, especially as you had mentioned, you know, that this is, this is actually quite a cheap test too. So we should all feel motivated, especially as primary care doctors to, uh, to do this. Does anyone have any more comments or questions about the um, screening or can I move on to the next part of the case? All right, great. Uh, that's all thumbs up, everyone who's listening. So uh, so we're going to move on here. So let's say uh, Max Flem does screen positive on his newborn screen. And so his pediatrician, avid Cribsiders listener here, sent for him for uh, confirmatory sweat testing right within the 72 hours of the positive result. His sweat test was 75 uh, milliequivalents per liter of chloride. And so he was referred to pulmonology for treatment. So the first question for you, and this is what we always want to know here on the Cribsiders, is what happens in your office? You know, So when the family arrives at the pulmonology clinic, what happens at, at that initial visit? Yeah, so this is um, a very overwhelming visit for for this family. And so because they're going to be seeing us so many times in this first six months and a year of this kiddo's life, we really try to be quite thoughtful and measured with what happens at that first visit. And so um, stepping back a little bit to, to understand who encompasses the CF care team, the CF Foundation does set certain standards for center accreditation for what pieces of the team everybody should have as best as they can. And this varies a bit by institution. But, you know, the full complement of the team would be the pulmonologist, a CF nurse coordinator, a CF dietitian, registered dietitian, social work, psychology, if you're lucky enough, pharmacy, if you're lucky enough, respiratory therapy is a big one. Some centers even have physical therapy involved in their clinic, you know, pharmacy liaisons. There's a, there's a huge, huge team that comes to support these families. And so at that first visit, we really try to limit the overwhelm. And so it may vary a bit depending on each location, but they're for sure going to meet their pulmonologist um, and then definitely their dietitian. And then the rest of the team, um, I left out like endocrinology, GI, all of these folks. So that will come in later. But the first visit is really nutrition focused. And the, the reason being, we know that nutrition and GI manifestations are far and away the most common in infancy for CF. There is data, and there this is published on the degree of lung inflammation present in infants um, with CF. And so even very young infants within the first three months of life do show signs of lung inflammation. And kids with CF can even have bronchiectasis by age three. And so we do know that the lung disease is still part of it. But because their growth is so critical at this stage, because they may have malabsorption, they have vitamin deficiencies, um, a lot of GI focus goes into this first visit to make sure that they're feeding well and they're growing and then initiating enzyme therapy if we need to. So before we even start talking about treatment, I'm sure there's a slew of baseline diagnostic testing that you want to get. Um, you know, as you just mentioned that these kids could already have lung inflammation. These kids are already going to have malabsorptive problems. So when they come into your office, they meet this entire team full of an actually amazing uh, multidisciplinary team to say uh, this is kind of one of our you know best clinics to do this in. But what tests do you kind of order off the bat? We I'll actually leave that open-ended to begin with, and then I'll ask a little bit of a couple follow-up questions after that. 
Yeah, sure. So I'll sort of group this into the first few months of life and then expand it beyond there. So within the first visit or two, we want to send a stool sample for fecal elastase. So this is testing for pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. So where the pancreas is not correctly excreting digestive enzymes. Um, and that actually happens, that pancreatic auto-digestion and destruction happens in utero for the most part for CF patients, for about 85% of CF patients. And so even at birth, you will you can see signs of malabsorption. And so that's why we send the stool sample to confirm that. You can also do a 72-hour fecal fat collection, but most families opt for just the, the single sample. So they're not you know storing the stool for three days in a row at home. And then we'll obtain a throat culture. Um, and so the microbiome and, and all of the microbiological surveillance in CF is a huge, huge part of, of their care for their entire life. And so we do start to collect those throat cultures right from the beginning to know which specific bacteria each child tends to grow. And then sometime within the first six months, we'll get a baseline chest x-ray, and that's repeated every couple years. And then sometime within the first few months, we'll get baseline lab work, um, like a CBC, electrolytes, uh, vitamin levels, and liver function testing. And does this include the genetic testing too? Is this when you would do that genetic testing along the same lines? So ideally, by the first visit, we would have genetics back already um, because some of it is sent from from the newborn nursery during the newborn screen, and then the rest of it is sent at the point of the sweat testing. Awesome. And then that throat culture. So generally, you know, we talk when we're older about sputum culture. So this throat culture, we just kind of do the back of their throat, and that's just kind of our, our proxy. Is that right? That's right. So it's um, an oropharyngeal culture. Some places um, where I did my fellowship, we called it epiglottic culture because you're really shooting down for the epiglottis if you can reach it. And the foundation recognizes this as the best sort of proxy for expectorated sputum. Um, it is fairly accurate in children. It's not used in adults and in older older folks. Even if they have difficulty expectorating sputum, you really do want to try to get that um, just because we know that the throat cultures are really only as accurate as we can be in the younger kids. And then the last question about this kind of diagnostic testing here is that chest x-ray. So that chest x-ray, you say sometime within the first six months, you know, we're going to end up talking about bronchiectasis. We're going to talk about treatment in in a little bit, advanced cross-sectional imaging, that type of thing. It sounds like these kids don't have that much lung inflammation right off the bat that you need a CT at, you know, at zero to three months. Is that correct? That's right. And in fact, the foundation discourages chest CT in those first few months of life unless you truly have a, a reason. If you have you know, a child in the NICU with terrible respiratory failure, there's no reason they couldn't also have an interstitial lung disease or something like that. But if it's this, an asymptomatic or fairly asymptomatic child with CF, we are not getting chest CTs. So just to summarize real fast for the diagnostic testing for our listeners here, and then we can move on to the next question. But so it sounds like once you have a positive result, really off that bat, whether it be the newborn screen or even when you're getting sweat test result, whatever it might be, we're already getting genetic testing sent along the way. We're getting a stool sample for fecal elastase to look at pancreas and exocrine function. We're getting a throat culture to look to see how well we are or what we're starting to colonize, at least in our early months of life. And then lastly, we'll get a baseline chest x-ray, baseline labs, but that doesn't necessarily need to be a CT scan. And I apologize just for the baseline labs, everybody. So CB, it sounds like CBC, BMP, as well as getting liver function as well and vitamins to go along with. 
All right, that's a lot. Just yeah. to just right off the bat, right? And we haven't even done anything yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was going to say I'm already I'm starting to understand why these visits can be overwhelming. <laughs> um for families and for providers too. It's a big team. Lots to think about. I know that we talked about how, you know, there we're doing a lot of testing, we're doing a lot of counseling, kind of meeting the team early in the visits, but that there can already be different kinds of organ damage that are present even in utero or very, very early in life. I guess my question for you is, when are the indications and when do we start thinking about treatment for these babies? Yeah, so a lot of it starts in infancy. And I'm going to sort of break it down into different systems, if you will. Um, And starting with GI and nutrition first, just because like we talked about, that's our main focus for infants. So if you do have a a child with pancreatic insufficiency, again, referring to exocrine insufficiency, we do have what's called pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy or PERT, P-E-R-T, and that you can start right away. And so this is actually really kind of interesting to learn how it's actually given. And so all pediatricians know, you know, no purees, no solids for babies before four to six months, except for our CF babies. Um, And so they will take their little beads of enzymes on a spoon of applesauce or another acidic type of puree, um, like pears or peaches or something like that. And that's true in in the newborn period. And they take it right before they either breastfeed or take their bottle. And um, that's how their enzymes are given by mouth. And so that's that's sort of just an interesting, you know, way we get a lot of feedback from sometimes from the nurses on the floor and the NICU saying, are you sure that this, you know, four week old is supposed to be having applesauce? And, and the answer is yes. And then they are also started on salt supplementation. So just table salt, um, because they are much more prone to hyponatremia and hyponatremic dehydration, just because of that chloride transport problem. And so they get extra salt in their bottles or with nursing. And so that's sort of from a nutrition standpoint. In addition, you know, some babies do end up needing tube feeds or something like that with with growth. And so that's um, something that can be started as soon as, you know, the pulmonologist and the, the dietitian feel that it's appropriate. Um, Nina, before you move yeah. on from that, I actually just wanted to ask a little bit more about the salt supplements and the because um, I know we're going to talk about all these things and I just want to get them in there right while right while we're here. Um, so for the a pancreatic enzyme replacement, I imagine that's with every feeds, right? So if you're a baby, 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 and you're feeding every two hours, you like we got to remember to to do this every two hours. Is that correct, or is it three times a day? Correct. It's with every feed. So eight to 12 feeds per day for a newborn. It's a lot of work. And the dosing is, it can be based um, just sort of straight dosing, newborn dosing, or it can be eventually it's based on weight. It can also be based on grams of fat if you want to get really fancy. So some of our families for the older children are actually calculating how much fat is in every meal because that is technically by the book the proper way to dose it. Uh, But most of the time it's weight-based. Awesome. And then those salt supplements as well. I just had another question about that. I'm trying to wrap my head around the physiology here. So these babies are getting dehydrated. They're getting volume down. Why yeah, is they, the sodium down, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we could definitely talk about um, about all of this. And actually, this is a uh, shout out to our hyponatremia episode um, that everyone should take a listen to. But, um, but in the meantime, the salt supplements... So if you're not excreting chloride through your channels, is that related or is that not really related? This is really a pancreatic exocrine function. You're just not absorbing stuff. So you're just pooping it out and getting dehydrated. It can be both, but it's more of the chloride transport. 
Um, and so the fact that the chloride and, and paired with that sodium is not moving appropriately. And so it's actually a little bit counterintuitive where you can, you have much higher risk for hyponatremic dehydration. Gotcha. So maybe water is literally staying inside of you. So you have extra free water from that perspective and you are, and you are becoming hyponatremic. Okay. All right. Um, and then again, shout out to, uh, to, I think it's episode 96 for our hyponatremia episode that's been released. All right. Sorry to interrupt. Um, we can continue on. Um, but thank you for answering those questions. Yeah, of course. Happy to. Um, so other treatments that we start from a global standpoint, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the CFTR modulator drugs, but some of those, the oldest one, Ivacaftor is actually approved down, I think to age two months now. And so depending on your genetics and if you qualify, some of the modulators can actually be started quite early in life. And then I think we're going to get into more of the pulmonary treatments and airway clearance a little bit later, but we start those within the first three to six months. Amazing. And so I guess in terms of, I know that you said that some of the modulators are approved down to the two months of age. What other, like what kinds of disease modifying treatments are available and how exactly does it work? I know you said it kind of depends on the genetics here. Yeah, exactly. So it's really fascinating from a basic science standpoint. And I, so if you can picture in your mind, there's six different, five or six different ways that the CF protein can have a problem. So if we think about, you know, just the transcription translation process and making the right proteins, you have to make the right protein in the cell. The protein has to fold properly. It has to then be trafficked up to the membrane. Stay with me. And then that channel has to open for chloride to go through. And anywhere along that chain, things can go wrong. And what goes wrong depends on your genetics. And so the drugs that we have to correct it depend where the problem is. And so for example, if your protein isn't folding and trafficking properly, then we have what are called CFTR correctors. And so they come in and help that protein to fold and traffic up to the membrane and to stay there. And then there um, are other drugs called potentiators, which means once the channel is up to the surface where it needs to be and it's folded properly and it's trafficked, it needs to open for chloride. And so the potentiator drugs then increase that open probability of the channel so that the chloride can move through. And so there's currently four available drugs on the market, and they're a mix of this corrector-potentiator combination uh, with one exception, the oldest one, Ivacaftor, with the um, brand name Kaleidico. So that one is, excuse me, just a potentiator. And so the patients who have the mutation where the channel looks right and it gets to the membrane, it just doesn't open, Ivacaftor comes in and opens it so that the chloride can move through. These are incredibly expensive drugs, but they have really changed the landscape of CF. They have extended the life expectancy for these patients into the mid-50s. So a baby born between 2017 and 2021, the average life expectancy is 53 years old, which just 10 or 15 years ago, it was in the mid-30s. So we are talking huge, huge gains in, in lung function and thereby life expectancy with the advent of these incredible drugs. And honestly, they're not, where these patients aren't even 50 years old, so that's just a guess. You know, they exactly. could, you know, they Maybe could longer. easily, yeah, exactly. You know, to say that your life expectancy is something based on a drug that's been out for five years seems a little um, premature, but I hope that it's prematurely early and not prematurely late. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the adult population with CF has grown at such a rapid rate compared to the static nature of the pediatric population with CF. And so big plug for the our med peds colleagues. So, so important because we are going to need adult pulmonologists to see CF where historically that has been a smaller percentage of, of what those folks do. So exciting. It's like the ideal thing that could be happening to a disease, right? Yeah, it's incredible. And so you were mentioning some of these drugs. So what are the actual drug names that are out there? What, how do they combine together to help us? And which drugs are you actually prescribing right now? Yeah. So um, I mentioned Ivacaftor first. Um, and so that is that is the oldest one. Um, and that is just the potentiator. And again, the trade name for that is Kaleidico. And so that one, there are less kids on it now because of the newer ones and just the genetics. And so that makes up a small percentage of our patients are on that one. The next one to come out was Lumacaftor Ivacaftor, and the trade name there was Orcambi. Now, this one was different because in order to qualify for Lumacaftor Ivacaftor, you needed to have a specific mutation called Delta F508, which is the most common mutation for CF. And so when this drug came out, a huge, huge proportion of our CF kits were able to go on, on these modulators. And then we saw increases in lung function. We saw um, that change in sort of day-to-day quality of life and things like that. The third one to come out was Tezacaftor Ivacaftor. And that trade name for that is Simdico. And again, sort of similar increases in lung function to its predecessor, um, a bit less side effects. But then everything really changed October of 2019 when Alexacaftor, Tezacaftor, Ivacaftor, came out. The brand name for this is Trikafta. We, the CF literature, you'll see this referred to as ETI. And this, this one worked completely differently. And so the three drug combo function at functions as two correctors and two potentiators. So the E, the Alexacaftor, um, has actually been shown to potentiate as well. And so the clinical gains that we saw with this drug were incredible. So an average of more than 13 percentage points in lung function, decreased pulmonary exacerbations, increased BMI, and improved patient-reported quality of life. And so this one was a huge game changer. And how are these drugs actually dosed? Is this a daily pill? Is this a once a month injection? I realize as a generalist, I have never prescribed it. So, uh, so I'm curious how, how this, how it's actually given and, you know, we should, uh, talk about it. Yeah. So these are oral, these are oral medications. They come in tablet form for the older kids and then in granule form for the younger kids. And it's for the tablet form, it's two pills in the morning and one pill in the evening. And that's every single day. And then similar, you know, twice daily dosing for the younger kids as well. And how do you find that medication burden for these, for these kids? You think they do okay with it because it's so it's, I mean, it just makes their life so much better, or you find that it's going to be tough, similar to other medicines that we have where they can't feel it as much like insulins or stuff like that. The adherence rates are incredibly high with this, almost higher than than you would even believe if you read adherence literature <laughs> because they're so effective and because our patients just feel so much better. And there's ongoing trials, which are incredible. Um, I you think you referenced one in the show notes, the Simplify trial, where we're actually looking at therapies we can start to take away from these patients because these drugs are so effective. And it's just such a mind shift in CF care to say, how about instead of adding a billion things to your plate, 
let's see what we can safely take away because of these advancements. And so my own anecdotal experience is that most of my patients will take this come hell or high water no matter what, and the rest of their their regimen is sort of, you know, hit or miss. And I think that's something to be said for medicines that physically make you feel better. We prescribe so many medicines that are preventative in a way that um, patients don't feel better, but we're trying to explain that you're going to feel better or you're not going to feel symptoms if you take this medicine um, as we talk about controller medicines and other things like that. And and to actually take a medicine where you feel better that day, um, I can see how that could definitely improve adherence. Um, Beck, do you want to take us to the next piece? Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, and awesome that it also has this like you know, long-term effect, right? That it like both makes people feel better in the short term and it also reduces inflammation and damage to their organ systems over time. Can I, yeah, I do want to just say one more thing because I know we were talking about disparities earlier. I think one important piece of this drug eligibility to point out is that there's still, you know, 10 to 15% of our CF patients that are not covered by any of these these life-changing drugs. And so there definitely are still more classic CF symptoms, if you will, in a non-insignificant part of our patient population because they are not eligible for these. And some of that does get back to that disparity work where some of the genetics in the minority populations are not eligible. And so there is, you know, as we talked about before, ongoing work to continually expand access to this. And as we talk about kind of other things, maybe some that some patients were at this point starting to think about taking away, from a pulmonology standpoint, I guess classically, when do we start thinking about airway clearance um, for our patients? Yeah, so we do start airway clearance for our babies in the first few months, and that's just with manual chest PT, with chest percussion. The CF Foundation does say that albuterol added in with um, manual chest PT and postural drainage is acceptable. So some of our babies will use some albuterol with their airway clearance, and we talked in our previous episode about why that can be helpful. And then as far as other nebulized mucolytics, so these are things like hypertonic saline or alpha, those are added in in older children. So sometimes under age two, those can be added if you're symptomatic or you're having a lot of pulmonary exacerbations. And then over age two, they start to become a bit more common. And we kind of talked about, actually, let's start here and then I'll ask my follow-up question. But so let's just start. So say he's a little bit older in this case, but what is that classic airway clearance that we usually use for CF patients? And although we'll probably talk maybe three years, five years about taking away some of this stuff, what's your classic prescription for, uh, for airway clearance for these patients? Yeah. So the order of therapies is important. It's not just whichever one is closer and grab whichever one you want. Um, And so let's talk a little bit about why we give what we give and when. Um, So we always will start with albuterol. So this is whether you have asthma or not. um, This is really to open the airway to bronchodilate before we're giving other uh, potentially bronchospastic agents like hypertonic saline. So we'll start with albuterol and that can be either your inhaler uh, with with the aerochamber or um, nebulizer. Most of our patients will do the nebulizer just because it's a bit more hydrating. And then that is followed with one of two mucolytics typically, so either hypertonic saline, and we're talking either 7% most commonly or 3%, or Dornis alpha. We don't typically combine those in the same treatment. Some centers 
do, but there is some suggestion that the hypersalinic environment can um, impact the functionality of Dornes. So you either want to wait, you know, 10 or 20 minutes or just separate those two out. Um, and so your mucolytic goes next and then your, your chest PT. So whether that's your oscillatory PEP or your vest or your manual chest PT, um, that can be going while you're doing these things. And then you have to get it all out, right? We talked uh, previously about how important clearing the actual airway is. And so our patients will learn a technique called a huff cough, which is a little bit different than a, a typical cough. And there's you know various YouTube videos out there from the CF Foundation about how to do this properly. But basically, you have to cough everything out with the infants and the older children that can't follow directions and, and things like that. You just sort of let them cough when they cough. Um, but the idea is to get that all out. And then now that you have your nice clean airway, that is when you go in with either an antibiotic inhaled um, like tobermycin or estrianam or other what I'm going to call airway topicals. So that might be inhaled corticosteroids if you also have asthma or other you know topical antibiotics onto the airway. And then how, how do you choose between hypertonic 3, 7, and, uh, and Dornase Alpha? Is that an institution preference, or is that based on, say, how bad their pulmonary clearance is, their PFT, something like that? So the choice between 3 and 7% is a little bit about uh, patient tolerability. So if 7% is just too irritating to them, we'll, we'll drop it down to 3%. Um, for some infants, they might start with just normal saline, but we'll, we'll you know, pretty quickly increase that. Um, and the idea with the hypertonic saline is to hydrate those really dehydrated secretions. So you put that extra salt load into the airway and that's gonna pull water in. Um, and then the Dornay's alpha, um, I like to describe it to my trainees as chopping up all the um, neutrophils that are down there. And so all of that neutrophilic inflammation gets chopped up and then you can um, huff cough it out. And then how frequently do you do these, uh, this regimen? Um, so in our babies and, and younger kids, at least daily airway clearance is recommended uh, by the foundation. And some families will fall into a, you know, a twice daily routine that works well for their baseline. So when they get up in the morning and then before they go to bed, and then you know, all of this is increased if they're sick. Okay. Yeah. And we'll definitely talk about that. And so like, for example, you could do this kind of regimen, the albuterol, hypertonic, and your chest PT cuff cough for one of them and then use Dornay's Alpha the second one, or it sounds like you could either do uh, or you can get that Dornay's Alpha 20, 30 minutes into it, especially if you if your if your vest is really working for a long time, you know, maybe that could be worth it. Does that sound correct? Yep. Yeah, you got it. Awesome. And then for the antibiotic choice, um, is that just based on cultures or do you always start with it in certain uh because I know we talked about the throat culture to begin this whole process, or do you always choose inhaled tobermycin to begin with, or do you do nothing until something grows on culture, for example? How do you kind of choose your antibiotics? Yeah, it's more the, the second one. So this is definitely not off the bat, and our care guidelines are very clear that preventative antibiotics, whether oral or, or inhaled, are not indicated. This is culture-based, and for Pseudomonas specifically, which is one of the more aggressive pathogens in CF, if you're not able to eradicate it after your first growth, then we fall into more of this, you know, maintenance microbial suppression with the inhaled antibiotics, but it's not off the bat. 
And so like when you get the throat culture, it's, if it shows, if it reads out like normal respiratory flora, that means it's nothing. And then if it reads out one of the special bugs that you're not used to, like Pseudomonas, as you mentioned, or even Staph aureus or something that was a little bit funky, that's when you say that's correct. Is that right? So it says normal respiratory and it's your normal microlab. And if they read out normal respiratory flora, you're good from a antibiotic perspective. Yeah, Just exactly. That's exactly. Okay. And most babies and, and children with CF follow a very predictable microbiological pattern where, as you mentioned, staph, so sensitive staph, MSSA, each flu, so haemophilus influenza, Moraxella, all of the ear infection bugs, minus strep pneumo. So those are the more common bugs, even E. coli actually in our infants um, because of reflux and, and other other things going on. E. coli can be a pretty common one in babies. Um, and this is all for surveillance. So this is a lot of education with our families because they'll get their culture results back and you know they're growing whatever they're growing and, and do we need to treat it? Well, oftentimes, no. Um, this is purely surveillance so that when they do get sick, then we know what we're targeting with our antibiotics. And most of that time, it's not with the goal of eradication, it's with the goal of suppression, because most of our CF patients will chronically culture something. And depending on how which bug it is, then you, you decide how aggressive you need to be. Super helpful. And changing the idea that it's about eradication to suppression, I think is probably like a really important teaching point, not just for families, but also other clinicians, right, that are that are taking care of these patients. Um, I know that we talked a little bit about some of the um, other therapies that we would start early in babies for other organ systems. But aside from, you know, our PERT and our vitamins and salt, are there other sort of common medications that patients might be taking to target other of their organ systems? Yeah, so from, from a GI standpoint, um, you know, we talked in a little bit at the beginning about constipation, and so um, most of our CF patients will be on some sort of bowel regimen. Now, with these highly effective modulators, this has also become less common, but um, you know, polyethylene glycol or Marilax is, is one of our favorites for CF constipation. Other things like la stimulant laxatives do not work well. Other stool softeners um, like coles do not tend to work well for CF stool. So the brand name Miralax is the one that we like the best. Um, from an ENT standpoint, a lot of our patients will be on some sort of nasal or sinus rinsing regimen because they have such, such bad sinus disease a lot of times. You know, the vitamins we didn't really get into, but the specific vitamins are your fat-soluble vitamins because of that malabsorptive process. So there are CF-specific formulations with A, D, E, and K for vitamins. So we have a great set of meds. We have a great set of um, actually uh, modulating therapy. We have a great set of supportive care. And so we've talked about kind of what happens for the first zero visit, you know, three months, et cetera, all these first things really in the first six months, actually, I should say. Now we're starting to see you regularly. So how often should you be seeing these patients? How often should we be monitoring these kids? And what does your frequent monitoring look like? So uh, we do still recommend quarterly visits, and, and I think there are some guidelines undergoing revision that we may see this change in the next few years, but for now, it's every three months with your cystic fibrosis care team, and we will usually get a throat culture at each of those visits. When kids are old enough to start doing pulmonary function testing, so the CF Foundation says to start trying around age three think that's going to be really unlikely. Most PFT labs will start trying around age four and then definitely by age five we've gotten them into the PFT lab, so lung function. Annual labs we've talked about, sometimes we do need blood work more frequently on the modulator drugs. Chest imaging we talked about 
And then as we get into the older kiddos, so over age 10, we do start screening for CF-related diabetes, and that's an annual screen with um, a good old-fashioned oral glucose tolerance test. Um, and so they're drinking the, the glucola load, and they're, they're fasting, and then we're drawing the blood work one and two hours thereafter. And, and that's because hemoglobin A1c is not sensitive enough to pick up CF-related diabetes. It's, it's a whole own entity. It's not type 1. It's not type 2. It's its own thing. And so our CF endocrinologists are really, really important when it comes to that. About 15% of teenagers will develop CF-related diabetes, and anywhere from 40 to 50% of adults with CF will develop diabetes. And it's a real turning point in terms of lung function and, and outcomes. So we screen pretty aggressively for that. And then in our teenagers and older kids, we start doing DEXA screening because um, CF bone disease is another important thing to be on the lookout for. And so we do have patients with osteopenia and even osteoporosis as well. I had one patient in fellowship who couldn't wear her vest for part of her um, admission because she had rib fractures. And so this is a real morbidity that we do want to be on the lookout for. And then the last one I will mention is mental health. So we've talked a lot about the burden of care that these families shoulder and how hard it is to live. You know, I can't imagine how hard it is to live with a, a fatal genetic condition, right? And how hard it is to take care of a child with with that, just navigating normal childhood. Um, And so we do screen both our patients and their parents for mental health as well. And I just had a question, um, especially as a generalist who could walk into patients on these drugs, you mentioned that we have to do some laboratory testing for drug monitoring. What should we be on the lookout for? um, You know, if I see a kid, for example, who's got elevated liver numbers, should I be very concerned or be like, ah, no, this is from his medicine? Yeah, so so that is the big one is is transaminases and other uh, liver function tests, and and that's either on modulator or off. But we do know that being on the modulator drugs does increase your risk of bumping um, your transaminases, and you know things like GGT and bilirubin, and so those are the ones that we're more commonly monitoring for labs. Um, CK is another one, created kinase, that we will sometimes see go up on modulator drug, but. Patients with CF can have CF-related liver disease, and sometimes that's asymptomatic transaminitis. And so knowing excuse me, what their baseline is and how high they are bumping if they are on the drug is part of that monitoring. And then another interesting one, it's not a lab value, but it's actually an ophthalmologic exam because you um, there is an increased risk of cataract development on these drugs, and so our CF patients get annual eye exams as well. And this is probably a discussion to share decision-making between you, the gastroenterologist, and the patient, but I imagine that these drugs are so effective and life-sustaining that you might not even want to take them off despite, um, despite liver injury. Has that come up for you and some of your patients, and what have you guys decided to do? Yeah, this comes up from time to time, and it is exactly like you mentioned, some shared decision-making, and then everything we do in medicine is risk-benefit, right, and understanding what the risks and benefits are. So the prescribing information for most of the modulators says that um, you don't need to dose-adjust unless you're more than three times the upper limit of normal, so there is some wiggle room there, Um, but you're correct in that most of the time... We try not to dose reduce or um, pause the modulator therapy unless there is, you know, clinically significant risk of liver injury. And this gets more common or more complicated, I should say, in our liver transplant patients because CF patients do get liver transplants just as as they, you know, used to get lung transplants. And so sometimes that can be much more complicated. 
And I realized we actually didn't talk when we're talking about monitoring. We didn't really talk about uh, chest imaging. You know, we kind of mentioned it earlier in our um, in our discussion about the chest X-rays and whatnot. We mostly talked about PFTs. So, what's the um, what's the guideline here for uh, for chest imaging as as these kids grow older? So, for the most part, and this is independent of the the therapies, it's a plain film chest X-ray every one to two years, unless you have a reason to do one sooner. If you're dropping your lung function, if you're having recurrent exacerbations, you know, you're going to either be getting more frequent imaging or more intensive imaging like a CT or, or even a bronchoscopy, but the imaging isn't as frequent. Yeah. And I can actually imagine how that's not really that helpful compared to your functional testing. And then obviously if you have functional abnormalities, then you're, then you're chasing that uh, regardless. So um, I can actually see exactly why that wouldn't be nearly as helpful as, uh, as we all think it would be. All right, Beck, do you have any more questions for the, for the monitoring piece or I can move on to the next part of the case? Yeah, no, this is, this is, I just, I'm like, my mind is being blown. This is awesome. But let's get let's get to the next chunk. This is awesome. Right. So we talked about the patient who is doing fine. And now, of course, we have to get to the patient who's not quite doing so fine. So let's fast forward. Say Max is now six. He's out of the newborn period. He's got two older siblings now, and they are all in daycare. So it's winter. Viruses just can't get enough of this household. All three kids have cough, congestion, rhinorrhea, and now Max develops a fever to 100.8. So mom calls into the pulmonology clinic and says, uh-oh, what do we do now? Yeah, so this happens, you know, all winter long. Um, those daycare scenarios just you can't escape. So for the most part, for our otherwise healthy CF kids, you know, a virus is going to be much more likely than a true, you know, bacterial infection or a low bar pneumonia or something like that. But we know that we're not dealing with healthy lungs at baseline, even if the kids are generally asymptomatic. Um, we're fairly aggressive with treating what we would call a pulmonary exacerbation, meaning they might have cough, they might have crackles on exam, they might have either weight loss or they haven't gained weight. They generally just feel lousy, like they're sick with something. And so it's your standard supportive care that you would any other child. Um, so lots of fluids, lots of rest, acetaminophen, um, ibuprofen as needed, and then really focusing on their airway clearance therapy. So if your baseline is once a day or twice a day, you're now going up to three or four times a day and increasing um, your frequency and sometimes your duration of airway clearance. We'll try that for a few days. If things aren't getting better, then we might add on an outpatient oral antibiotic. And here we're targeting whatever bugs we know that the child grows and for suppression, because we know that even if they're asymptomatic at baseline, that whatever's down there can be making things worse symptomatically. Um, so we'll try outpatient oral antibiotics first for a mild pulmonary exacerbation. And to follow up on that oral antibiotic, um, just for a question here. So I have two questions. The first is if this patient was never on antibiotics, you know, since we never grew anything, would you just start with amoxicillin or would you start with something broader? And then the second question is for those patients who are on inhaled antibiotics, can you tell us the difference of why adding an oral would be different than the inhaled? Yeah, so I'll start with that second one. Um, the inhaled antibiotics are, again, sort of what I would think of as maintenance suppression. They're not often going to be used to treat an exacerbation because they're just not strong enough, really. And so, so then to get to the first question about what do you choose um, based on your culture, if you've never had any antibiotics, then we go based on the patient's culture. Now, if the patient's never grown anything, which I think at age six would be highly unlikely, but if you have a baby or, you know, if you've just never grown anything, then we're going to target what we know are the most common um, epidemiologically. So that's going to be um, MSSA and H flu. 
and um, you can do um, a MOX or Keflex, um, excuse me, Cephalexin, or um, something like Augmentin, um, which is a MOX clavulinate for a little bit of that extra beta-lactamase um, activity. Super helpful. Um, and I just finished up a month of Peds Urgent Care. And so one of my major questions is, you know, in urgent care, you know, when when can you send someone home? And when would you send um, someone to the hospital for additional treatment? And I think this is a little bit different than some of our indications for pulmonary respiratory distress than for um, our patients that don't have CF. So specifically for a, a kiddo with CF, when would hospitalization be warranted? Yeah, it's a great point. And, um, you know, I, I would welcome any calls from, from urgent care from the ED for our, yeah. for our CF patients, because while it's most likely a virus and mostly they need supportive care, if they have CF, they probably need antibiotics too, if they've been coughing for long enough and they feel lousy enough and their airway clearance isn't working. And so even though, you know, your antimicrobial stewardship would say, please do not give antibiotics to the kid with rhinovirus is a little bit different in this population. Um, so indications for hospitalization there are definitely some CF emergencies that you know we would need to hospitalize kids for. That would be hemoptysis, so large volume hemoptysis, uh, pneumothorax, and then that hyponatremic dehydration that we talked about. So when the babies are getting really sick and they're not drinking and they're not nursing and now they're not peeing, definitely they need electrolytes and fluid resuscitation and sometimes do get admitted. And then the fourth CF emergency is actually bowel obstruction. So distal intestinal obstructive syndrome. It's different than the pulmonary exacerbation that we're talking about in this case, but that is another CF emergency because they can perforate um, their bowel and go to XLAP. Um, and sometimes we'll lose big chunks of bowel. And so that is definitely one of the indications for hospitalization. For a pulmonary exacerbation though, I think it's if you're failing outpatient treatment or outpatient treatment is failing you, I should say, where you're still having symptoms, you're on antibiotics, you're doing all the airway clearance, and you still are coughing a ton and still having fever um, and just not feeling better. The, um, the Actually, the bowel obstruction and the hemoptysis are now starting to scare me. Um, yes, they should. Are, yes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's good. We're all on the same page on that one. Um, I didn't really start thinking about bowel obstruction. So now I just want to know what it's obvious the stuff, right? A bowel obstruction presents like a bowel obstruction, but is there something we should be start thinking about to be worried? Like should CF patients like, okay, if they've been three days without having a bowel movement, we should start worrying about this. If it's been seven days or is there something else that usually shows up that I should start thinking about bowel obstruction? Yeah, we are very aggressive with this management at home. Um, so what worries me is when I hear vomiting. So if I have a patient who hasn't had a stool in a two days, three days, we are upping the Miralax regimen at home like a lot, essentially like a clean out at home, almost like a colonoscopy prep because the risk is so significant. And then if it's been longer than that, if I hear vomiting, you're coming into the hospital because it's just the risk is so high of such a poor outcome with the bowel obstruction. See, that's such a good pearl because I'd be like, ah, the kid's got gastro, right? Or whatever, you know, whatever. We wouldn't necessarily move down that down that road if they called me the primary care doctor rather than calling you the pulmonologist when they when they when they got in trouble here. And then just a follow-up question about hemoptysis. Are these kids at higher risk for hemoptysis based on all the things that they do? And does that mostly have to do with the um, with the hypertonic or is it something else entirely? Yeah, it's something else. It's the bronchiectasis. So if you and it, it's Increases with age, so our, our younger kids are not as susceptible as our teenagers, but the, the worsening bronchiectasis, if you remember your um, anatomy and your bronchovascular bundle, right, your airway runs with two vessels right next to it, and one is under systemic pressure and one is not. And if you have bad enough bronchiectasis that your 
airway scarring is eroding into a nearby vessel, now you are bleeding into your lung. And most of the time, you know, scant or very mild hemoptysis is just from an infection and you get some antibiotics and maybe you pause your airway clearance if it's bad enough for a little bit, let things heal, let things clot. But if you have eroded into an arterial vessel, this is now truly an emergency and you're likely headed for bronchial artery embolization with interventional radiology because you can essentially bleed out your entire blood volume into your lung because it will absorb that space. And so this is definitely a CF emergency. Yeah, hemoptysis scares me a lot more now than it did maybe a couple years ago. Um, the other thing is it's always that, uh, it's a little scant hemoptysis, this should be expected versus what's that just like we're just kind of moving into the opening up an entire artery into your lungs where you have, um, you know, less than an hour to really get resuscitation. It's a tough call. In deep, deep trouble. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't want to make that over the phone. That's for sure. Uh, so you bring them into the hospital. Um, yeah. so just to follow that up though, for a second. So what happens, we'll just, you know, we're talking about Max here really has just pulmonary symptoms um, right now. Let's just say that he had a bowel movement this morning, no right. vomiting, uh, right. doing okay. <laughs> Didn't see any blood. Um, Amazing. And so, uh, and so when he does get admitted to the hospital, um, what happens to these patients in the hospital and how does that regimen change compared to what he was doing at home? Yeah, so you're going to get more intensive airway clearance. So that means respiratory therapy, hopefully, depending on your hospital resources. And, you know, COVID seemed to change a lot of that availability. But in a perfect world, you would have respiratory therapy supervising and administering airway clearance. And it's usually with the vest, um, because when our kids are sick and feeling lousy, their effort into some of the other therapy is not as great. And so it's nice for them to just wear something and not have to participate as much when they feel sick. So that's usually four times a day, sometimes three times a day. It'd be great to do four times a day. I've even gone as high as five times a day sometimes because you just really, they feel better when they get all of that stuff out. Um, nutritional support, fluid resuscitation, and IV antibiotics. So if you've already taken oral antibiotics and you're coming in, most of the time you're going to go on an IV regimen. And again, this is directed at whatever bugs we know are down there. Um, we will generally double cover pseudomonas in your prior CF episode. You did go into that beautifully, so I won't, I won't cover that again. And then if you're lucky enough to have physical therapy as well, just getting you know up and moving and not just sitting in the hospital bed for 10 to 14 days, any amount of exercise that our patients feel up to doing is only beneficial. Awesome. And then we talked a little bit about hydration and kind of supportive care from that standpoint. I imagine most of the babies certainly are going on, um, going on. Uh, IV fluids. Um, hopefully the older kids can uh, can find a way to take stuff down. Is there anything else that we're missing that the, these kids should be on? I don't think so. I think we do some other like screenings and catch them up on things if they're due while they're in the hospital and if it's appropriate for their level of illness. Um, but I think, I think that's mostly it. And I guess switching from an urgent care resident to a hospitalist resident, right? When do we know kids are ready to be discharged? Are there any objective measures aside from, you know, the pulmonologist said, we can, we can send you home. Um, what kinds of things are, are we looking for to help us make that decision? Yes. Yeah, so we're like any hospitalized patient, we want to see if whatever brought them in, right, is getting better. I think in general, CF pulmonary exacerbation admissions used to be 14 days, sometimes up to 21 days. 
And there has been work research done looking at this optimal duration, and there is no consensus from the foundation of what the optimal duration is. There was a recent non-inferiority study that showed that in adults, 10 days was not inferior to 14, as long as you were on appropriate antibiotics and your lung function was improving. So somewhere in that 10 to 14 day range is probably what we'll shoot for. Some kids will go home after seven, some will stay a little longer. But PFTs, if you're old enough to do them and can do them reliably, are going to be one of our bigger markers. Um, And so most of us will get pulmonary function testing on admission, whether that's in clinic or the first day of hospitalization, to know how far off of their baseline our patient is. And then somewhere around that five-day mark, I would say, three to five days, five to seven days, you want another set of PFTs to see how close to baseline you've gotten. Hopefully, you're about halfway back to baseline at that point. And if you're not, we want to change something. We want to either adjust our antibiotics or change our airway clearance frequency or intensity because things are not progressing the way that we would expect. Um, We also want to see weight stabilization or ideally weight gain while you're in the hospital because most of the time our CF patients are losing weight while they're sick. And then again, just resolution of their worst sort of symptom that brought them in initially. And then from an antibiotic standpoint, um, are you, I imagine you're switching them to an oral antibiotic regimen if you're sending them home to complete something. How long did you, would you generally send them with orals past their hospitalization? So it depends. If they've stayed the full 14 days, we often won't send them home on anything else. Even at 10, I think you know less and less we're, we're adding something onto the end of that. Um, if you live in a in a resourceful area where you have home nursing and you can do home IVs, sometimes that is an option. Um, It's not recommended as initial therapy by the foundation. If for some reason you're going home at the seven day mark, uh, you know, if that it's a conversation with the family about the risks and benefits of that. And if really transitioning back to orals after a week is appropriate. Gotcha. And then um, are you seeing them pretty close as follow-up to, to get repeat PFTs to see if they've really made it back to baseline? And then when would you, you know, you mentioned about halfway through the five to seven day mark. When do you expect them to have complete recovery? So sometimes we don't get complete recovery. And so sometimes with every exacerbation, you lose a little bit of lung function. Now, every human loses adult you know, loses lung function into adulthood, but our CF patients can lose lung function a little bit faster. So the rate of decline can be a little bit steeper. And with every exacerbation, you want to get as close to that baseline as you can, ideally by the end of your admission, but if not, certainly within a week or two following hospitalization. And sometimes you're at a new baseline that's a little, you know, maybe one point lower than you were before. Um, But we're playing the long game here. The longer we can keep your lung function as high as possible, possible, that is, you know, the biggest marker of longevity. And so we really want to get you as close to back to your baseline as we can. Awesome. So it sounds like if I'm getting this right, we come into the hospital, we, uh, we get admitted, we end up increasing our airway clearance, still the same regimen in the sense that we do, except we make sure we use a vest if you weren't using a vest at home and then, but doing it like upwards four times a day, maybe even five times a day with IV antibiotics covering either what the bug we've been treating with as an outpatient and, or what, um, what you might've been growing before. We follow that for five to seven days, just right off the bat with treatment until we get uh, repeat PFTs. And really, and then after that, it's really depending on how you're doing, what your function's like, talking with your pulmonologist, um, 
and moving along. But big thing we should always pay attention, especially the younger kids, is weight gain. Um, and uh, and we should always remember the GI symptoms, especially the uh, these younger kids. Um, it sounds like this is the big thing. Before we get to take home points, Beck, is there anything else you want to ask? I uh, I've asked a bazillion questions during this one, um, and so I I mean I, I have had a lot of questions. So uh, anything yeah, you want to ask? And they've been super. I mean, they're super helpful. I mean, I I've just been like you know this is not something I've seen a lot of. I think. Um, I don't think that at my institution we have a like a very high number of CF patients that we take care of. I think I can say you know I've taken care of one kid on the inpatient side and one adult on the inpatient side with CF. So this has been like mind blowing. I'm loving it. The one thing that I actually didn't know about um, was like inpatient PFTs. I actually don't think I've ever seen that. Are they like just like you roll the kid to the PFT lab? Is that like how you how you do it? Um, so I've never seen that that done as part of a part of a plan. Yeah, it depends on your local practices. I I would think that most um, hospitals can do inpatient PFTs if they have an outpatient lab on site. On site, um, yeah, and so their kids are either going down to the lab or with more of the portable equipment. The RT can sometimes just come to the room with a laptop and the spirometer um, and do it in the room. It's better for infection control. Um, you're not um, spewing pseudomonas all over the, the PFT <laughs> lab, which is frowned upon, but it happens. And so that's a huge piece of their inpatient care is monitoring their lung function. Super, super helpful. I guess, yeah, to get to the take-home points, what of all of this amazing information are your take-home points for our listeners? Yeah, so number one is is newborn screening is not perfect, and you can still diagnose CF without a positive newborn screen. I think, you know, sweat testing is relatively easy and non-invasive, so anytime you are suspicious about possible CF, no pulmonologist will ever fault you for doing a sweat test. Just do it. I think early clinical manifestations um, are largely GI and nutrition related, but we know that even very young children with CF already have some degree of lung disease. The fourth would be that highly effective modulator therapy has just changed the landscape um, for many CF patients, but there's still some work to do because not everybody qualifies. And Buck, what you were mentioning about not having this experience, you know, when I was training, we almost always had CF patients admitted for some part of the rotation, whether you were inpatient or whatever. Um, And after these drugs came out in, you know, especially ETI in 2019, plus COVID hitting three months after that, no one got admitted for so long. And now that we're coming out of the pandemic and these drugs are so effective, our CF kids mercifully are just not being admitted anymore. And so while that's great for patients and families, it leaves a gap for our trainees. And so I think it's really important um, to still focus on this, not only because it's still going to be on your boards, right, but because there's still this patient population that can't have these these drugs. And so it's still being aware of all of this, I think is really important. And my last take home point is just that there's lots of exciting new research with even better newer therapies on the horizon. So this field is just moving at a rapid pace. That's amazing. I feel like we hit everything. Um, clearly, that's not the you case, right? You go to three it. years of pulmonology fellowship, you do, uh, you know, <laughs> not to mention do some subspecialty training in cystic fibrosis. But um, but thank you so much for giving us an overview here. The last question we always ask before you want to go is, do you have anything you'd like to plug? 
No, I don't. I don't have, I'm not, you know, active on social media other than my private um, accounts, but I will just say like pulmonary fellowship, CF care. This is what I said last time. CF is my absolute favorite. I'm just delighted that you would have me on again to talk about it because it's just so fun. Um, so everyone going to peds and everyone going to pulmonary and um, I will see you there. Amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It was, was an amazing episode. And for those listeners out there who haven't checked out um, our previous episode, check out episode 91 on uh, airway clearance. You can hear Dr. Uh, Ina St. Ange talk again about all the all the, um, the nuances of airway clearance. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our team, as well as our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Sam Mazur. And this has been Dr. Beck. Raymond Kolker. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode. And if you made it this far, we have a lovely AI poem to read for you. Reshaping the code, genetic symphony plays, cystic fibrosis fades.